Time to turn in our Bibles. Exodus chapter 32 this morning. It's on page 72 of the Bible you have in front of you. Exodus 32, the chapter encompasses one event in the life of Moses and the people in the wilderness. And we've looked at the first half of that event last week uh, where we were on the mountain with Moses and the Lord. And this week we're among the people encamped at Mount Sinai in the second half of this chapter. And if we've taken anything away from this chapter, anything away from this last week, looking at this, it's that the Lord is merciful. It's because of His mercy that the people of Israel are just not completely wiped out, consumed for their irrational, blatant idolatry. Moses pleads on behalf of the people, but he doesn't plead in their defense, he pleads uh, for the reputation of the Lord, appealing to his faithfulness and affection for the people. To consider that the Lord has chosen them, that they belong to him, um, it's because of his mercy, not anything in the people that he spares them. So the question becomes, will they choose to obey? Will they choose to serve him alone? And Moses is going to pose that question at a very decisive moment in the text Uh, before us this morning. So chapter 32, beginning at verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you've brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son, his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, 
but if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is God's holy word for our example, for our instruction. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that in these moments as we sit under the authority and scrutiny of your word, that you would teach us. That you would guide our understanding. Help us, Lord, in applying this passage faithfully to this moment in time that you've placed us. It is an example to us. It is an instruction and a warning to us. And as we've been reminded this morning, it is your word that is a lamp to our feet, a light unto our path, how we need this word. Put one foot in front of the other. Take each breath. We do not live bread alone, but by your very word to us. Work it deep into our hearts. We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. When I see the name Justin Amash, I usually pay a little closer attention to the headlines or to peruse the article just a little bit more because I know Justin. We spent a few years in elementary school together. I remember going over to his house for a birthday party in the third grade. And once we got into middle school, high school, we went to different schools, different ways. And that was about the last time I had contact with Justin, who is now a state representative uh, for Michigan. And uh, probably would have been a good, good excuse, I was thinking of this, to make contact and reconnect before using his name in an illustration. But, uh, um, but Justin has made some headlines recently because of a certain political decisions or alliances in particular, kind of distancing himself from the president and that administration, which has caused a bit of a stir. And then now it seems because of that alliance maybe distancing himself a little bit from his constituents. Um, so po- politically, he's not aligning with one side or the other in sort of our, our tribal political system. But seemingly trying to work that middle ground. I don't know how that's going to work out for him. It may be a very wise decision in this current climate. I can't really speak to his rationale or the path he's chosen. I hope it's a decision that honors Christ, helpful for those that he represents. But what I do know is that there is no middle ground when it comes to our allegiance to God. Here that the people have distanced themselves from God in their idolatry, in their rebellion. They're still using these elements of worship, things that maybe they should be doing, and yet it's to satisfy their own desires. Taking God, making God on their own terms. You see, Aaron tries to backpedal. He doesn't want to align with the evil of the people, yet at the same time, contributing to their sin. I think we're often tempted. Maybe not just tempted, but we're content to walk the middle ground in our allegiance to God and obedience to Him. So what needs to happen when this is the case? How does Moses stand against this you know, middle ground mentality which quickly escalates into defiance of the Lord. We see a righteous anger in Moses, the righteous actions of this servant 
on the requisite or the required righteousness of the one that Moses foreshadows. We really see Moses at his very best in this chapter. And it shows us the beauty of Jesus Christ. So you may remember, the whole incident began because the people are restless. The people are impatient. You know, 40 days without this designated leader, what could have happened to Moses? Except we know that waiting 40 days was possible because that's exactly what Joshua did. He's up there on the mountain, maybe not right next to Moses, and Moses probably met him on the way uh, down the mountain. Uh, but he's there with him. And you may recall that Joshua is one who leads the people in battle, so he knows the sounds of battle. He's familiar with the cries and the screams of the battlefield, and that's what he thinks he's hearing. And it's not until they're near the base of the mountain where Moses gets to see what the Lord has described him. It really sinks in. No, this isn't, this isn't a battlefield. This is drunken singing and wild dancing and people throwing in food fights or you know, whatever you can imagine uh, when there's no control. So Moses sees all this exactly as the Lord had described him. It fills him with this holy rage. So this anger burned hot, which in most cases is not a commendable thing. But in this case, Moses' anger is described the same way that God's anger is described. Back in, in verse 10. It says God's anger burned. Now Moses' anger burns. So it helps in justifying this anger, this righteous anger. Anger Down the road a ways, you know, when the people are back to their same old tricks, grumbling in the wilderness, Moses' temper does get the best of him. There are consequences for that. Numbers chapter 20. But in this case, that anger is fully justified. In his anger, he throws down these stone tablets, which at the time would have been the most valuable physical property in the universe. I mean, think about this. And I wonder why in verses 15 and 16 there was so much language about these tablets. Just It emphasizes how important they were. You know, of the writing surfaces of the day, you've got stone, you've got clay tablets, there's uh, different types of leather they might write on, and uh, papyrus. But it was the most enduring writing, the most important, that was actually put in stone. And here there's one copy for the people. They're the, the vassal in that covenant relationship. And another copy for the Lord is the suzerain, the sovereign in that covenant. So verses 15 and 16 really, really setting us up as readers for the tragedy of verse 19. Oh, he threw the stones down. No, no, he threw these tablets down. That's how serious this is. It's not an outburst of, of anger on Moses' part. We just sort of uncontrollably you know, throws something because he's so mad. We've, we've done that. We've probably seen that. Um, this, this is not what, what's happening here. Moses, he shatters the tablets in a very specific place, in a very calculated way. There's a ceremonial aspect to this. The covenant between God and His people has just been shattered. It's just broken by their actions. So he does this at the base of Mount Sinai so everyone could see this if they weren't too drunk or asleep to see what was going on. So they would know that there's going to be consequences to the breaking of this covenant. Later in the Bible, the prophet Zechariah does a similar thing where he breaks a staff as a picture to show that God's covenant with the nations has been 
broken. There are consequences to this. One of them is the taste of the water for a little while. Moses smashes the tablet and then proceeds to smash this idol, likely most made of wood and overlaid with gold, so it could be burned, scattered into that water source coming from uh, the mountain. And eventually, as the people would drink the water then, we kind of have this picture in our mind that they're all sort of lined up along the river. Likely, it's just as they would drink the water, this bitterness, this dust from the idol would pass through their system and end up as the defiled waste as an idol should be. 2 Kings 23, King Josiah does a similar thing. He tears down the Asherah poles and burns them, scatters the dust among the people. There's another angle here. It fits really well um, with the test that the Lord provides for His people. A little later on in Numbers chapter 5, there is a test for adultery among the people. Um, if a husband suspected his wife of adultery, he could bring her to the priest. And amongst other things, you have to drink this water mixed with um, just a bitter drink. And so that the people of Israel here being being judged for the spiritual adultery against the Lord with this water mixed with the dust of the idol. But the, the idol is completely destroyed in line with the Lord's instruction. If we go to back to chapter 23, God speaks of those false gods, all those little g gods of Canaan. He says, You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Which is what we see Moses doing here. So the righteous anger of Moses teaches us some things about anger, um, as well as the actions of the people here that he discovers. They're out of control. Uh, in verse 25, it says that they, they have broken loose. There's no restraint. And we understand that phrase, you know, let your hair down. Oh, he really let his hair down. She really let her hair down. That, that's the, the language that's being used that Moses is seeing. A little hard to justify. King James goes so far says Moses saw that the people were naked. Uh, that may have been part of this self gratification, but that gives us a picture that the text doesn't necessarily convey. Uh, but this emotionally driven worship, this loss of, of restraint and self control. Paul speaks to Timothy in Second Timothy chapter three. He says in the, in the days to come, as part of this ungodliness that you will see, the ungodliness of the age, people would lack self control. Think of 1 Corinthians 7. He says that, that married couples should not deprive one another unnecessarily because a lack of self-control leads to greater problems. Loss of self-control is a dangerous thing. Self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit that indwells disciples of Jesus. It should be on display in the life of the Christian. There are some groups that they may even be gathered in worship on a day such as this. They'll actually glorify the loss of self-control. You know, the less restraint, the more free-for-all and emotive, the more spiritual is the moment. That, that's the message that's being conveyed. And I have no doubt that the people of Israel thought that they were being very spiritual as they let their hair down in worship. Worshiping God of, of their own making. Um, and before you think, well, this is a nice, convenient Presbyterian application, um, 
Just, just think of how easily we can fool ourselves. We can fool ourselves when we do not, when we hold the Word of God loosely. Or we just kind of use it to prop up our own ideas or preferences. It, it is the Word of God, the beauty of God's saving grace that should shape our emotions, should shape our responses. Not toward a, a greater loss of self-control or loss of restraint, but with a greater honesty as those indwelled by you know, the Spirit of God. So Moses is showing a righteous anger here, and if we're honest, this is not how we would describe our anger most of the time. Most of the time our anger is very selfishly motivated. We're impatient. We don't get what it is we want in the moment or what we're expecting or we're uncomfortable or not getting... Even if it's a really good thing, we're not getting what we want. Now, our anger may be justified at the sin in our own hearts. And the Spirit shows us this and convicts us of our sin, or the sin around us, or the sin against us. But does that anger then put us on our knees in repentance or in intercession for others? You know, fits of anger, that, that's the fruit of the flesh, Paul reminds us in Galatians 5. Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Do not the sun go down on your anger, on your cause for your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. We know that a righteous anger can go south very quickly. So we need to run to the reality of God's care, to, to the reality of His perfect rule over us. We have to run, or this... This anger so quickly turns to bitterness and starts to consume us. You've got, you got to run, people. You've got to run when this happens. It doesn't take long. Maybe you've heard or been counseled. You know, take your anger to God. Vent to Him. That The psalmist does this. Um, you know, go ahead. Don't hold back. Just share it all with God. Which is plausible. The Lord is a perfect Heavenly Father who hears us and and we'll hear our cries of anger. But if He is sovereign, if He is our perfect Heavenly Father, if, if we are resting in His providential care, then any unrighteous anger ultimately becomes anger at Him. That's what happened to Moses in Numbers 20. If it's anger at Him, then David Powelson counsel says we need to treat it like other anger. What am I not getting? What expectations are not being met? says you will invariably find particular life-dominating demands that have been asserted against God and substituted for God Himself. So even at the end of the day, at the end of all these you know, diagnostic questions about our anger, it is so often an unbelief. There's Pallison again. Unbelief blames God for the bad things, walks away angrily, sets about manufacturing other gods who might give us what we want. Faith is unafraid to credit God with controlling both the delightful and the bitter things that happen to us. Faith continues to seek help of the one who alone can help us. So yeah, Moses is at his best here. He's taking on more of the character of God, the Lord's righteous anger flowing through him, but how quickly that can change for Moses and in our own hearts. So there's, there's some more righteous actions that that flow from Moses' anger here. Part of God's judgment, his discipline of the people. Next thing he does, he goes straight to his brother, the designated leader in his 
absence. And he asks him that question in verse 21. Basically point blank. What happened? What do they do to you? They brainwash you? They hold you hostage? That you could lead the people to such a great sin. So as hard as that may have been for Moses, he lays that right at the feet of his brother. He was culpable for this unfaithfulness. So as a leader, he's the one that needed to be addressed first. And fortunately, Aaron responds in this Genesis 3 type fashion, casting the blame elsewhere, trying to get himself off the hook in some ways. Typically doesn't work. I was just standing there and I would jump this idol. No one's buying that. Moses isn't buying that. The people aren't buying that. God is not buying that. I think we, we, think we get a glimpse here of just how, uh, how, how sin affects us. You know, it's, it, it becomes irrational. It's indefensible before God to the point where it sounds silly. You know, Lord, if you only knew my kids. You know, I wasn't just grasping for freedom, for more comfort, for more money. Honestly, Lord. Lord, I, I really did care about you and the things that you valued. I, just, I was too busy. Our sin so easily turns inward, self-protection, self-justification. That's where it has to take us. So Moses then has to distance himself from his brother and his leadership, at least for a moment and draw the line in the last epic battle in Lord of the Rings. Uh, the riders of Rohan, they're out on the battlefield before Minas Tirith and they are, they're taking hits left and right. They're scattered. And a new enemy forms on the horizon. And so King Theoden, the king of the Roharim, he shouts out, to me, to me! And you see the riders begin to form a line. And then they advance towards the enemy. You hear the urgency in Moses' voice here? If you're for the Lord, if you stand with Him, to me, to me, now! This rebellion, this blatant idolatry must be stopped. So here is a chance. Here is a chance for the people to turn. Here is a chance for repentance and to stand with the Lord. Maria, it's the Levites who stand with the Lord with Moses. Remember, remember Moses from the tribe of Levi. There may have been some solidarity there with Moses, but they stand with him. Wouldn't be surprised if Aaron comes as well. Maybe his head hanging a little bit lower, acknowledging his guilt in this. Keep in mind that the Levites, they have not been anointed priests yet. That was still coming. This event actually plays a role in their appointment to that office. But the Levites are showing this kind of commitment that God desires. Now just imagine what is going through their heads as they hear Moses give this instruction. You know, take your swords and go through the camp. Now this is not, it kind of reads like it, but it's not some indiscriminate killing where they're just, they're out there running back and forth, hacking and slashing. Um, they're systematically, they're going through the camp those who had not returned to the Lord, abandoned their idolatry, they would be cut off from God's people. Somehow, you know, we don't read this in the text. The Lord would show them you know, those who were obstinate in their idolatry, whether that was neighbor, friend, brother, son. For the repentant, that sword is 
achieved. But for those who refuse decisive action to guard the holy name of God, to guard the holy calling of his people, I mean, you talk about a hard decision. I mean, something that would have been just agonizing for Moses, the rest of these Levites with him. But it shows a greater allegiance, a greater faithfulness to God. They had to be more concerned with what God thinks, with His holiness and obedience, than even to, with their closest family and allegiance to their closest family and friends. You can hear the words of Jesus here in Matthew 12. He issues a similar call of allegiance. Whoever is not with me is against me. We are either with Christ, standing with Him, loving what He loves, standing upon His word, or we are enemies of Him in our sin. So as a church, let's hear that rally cry this morning, the rally cry of Christ to me. Is our allegiance to the Lord, are we willing to do what He says no matter what? This means that He's in control. This means everything we are, everything we have is at His disposal. Belongs to Him. I think the longer the Lord keeps me around, the longer the Lord keeps any of us on mission for His glory. Um, the more I realize that He usually doesn't tell us how this wilderness is going to look as we're going. Um, I don't come in tomorrow morning, Monday morning, and hit the hit the play button and get sort of God's providential rundown for the day. I just don't get that. That'd be cool, but I don't get that. We're told what the journey would be like, what to expect from His Word, but He's called us to trust, to lean on Him for the details of every day. Because His claim, His claim on us is stronger than anything else, stronger than family or friends. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is he the one we love? Are we standing with Jesus? Pursuing holiness, obedience because of our love for Jesus. It's greater, it's deeper and wider and love for anyone or anything else. So we'll come back to that and the significance of that, of those words. Before we do that, just a simple word on church discipline that God has given to us as His people. We don't go around striking with swords when our sin comes into the open. At least, you know, not literally. We are at war. We must be killing sin or it will be killing us, John Owen reminds us. But God has given us this discipline in His church to guard us, to preserve the holiness of His name, of His people. Think of Hebrews chapter 12. And what a grace to us. As a perfectly, perfect heavenly Father, He disciplines those that He loves. And it may be very painful at the time, but it, it bears the fruit of righteousness. So don't spur the discipline of a heavenly Father. I have to say that there is... There's nothing, godly leaders in the church, nothing that they hate more than introducing the tension or disruption within the body because of exposed sin. It is with tears 
that leaders must confront sin in themselves and in the church. Moses had to confront his brother. Levites, their own families. Paul has to confront Peter in Galatians 2 over gospel confusion. And yet, in that same moment, he's willing to be cut off from Christ if it meant that more of his kinsmen, the Jews, could be grafted in to the true vine. And that, I mean, that resonates with what Moses does here in verse 30. In the following verses, he goes to the Lord and intercedes. He goes to make atonement for their sin. So here's Moses identifying with the people. He, think of that, he's still identifying with them after all of this. Lord, forgive them this great sin, but if you won't, then treat me just as you would treat them. He knows the sin deserves death. He asks the Lord just to, to kill him right out along with the rest of them. The Lord is faithful, merciful, so he answers Moses, says, there's going to be repayment uh, for sin. It will not stand. I cannot let it stand. But you need to continue with the mission. Take the people into the promised land. It's there that, that God will visit their sin upon them. They're going to lose that good land. Be taken captive by the Babylonians. So they're going to experience the covenant curses for their idolatry. So the plague we see in verse 35, it's smaller scale judgment for breaking the covenant. We don't, we don't know how many, if any, uh, died from this illness, but there would be far-reaching consequences for the idolatry. But Moses is willing to die for the people, with the people. You've, you've heard me say a couple of times already that Moses is at his best in this chapter, and in this passage, but his best ultimately is not good enough. He does not have the requisite righteousness to atone for their sins. Of course, neither does the Apostle Paul, who's willing to die for his Jewish ancestors. Their heart's in the right place, but their, their lives are just not enough. Just like your life, or mine, or all of our obedience put together, it's not enough to atone for sin. Only Jesus is enough. Only His life and death can make atonement for the sins of the people, for your sin and for mine. Think of Jesus as, as the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. He identifies with all those he came to save. And Jesus says to his Father, take me. Blot, blot me out for the sins of Brad, blot me out for the sins of Ed. Blot me out for the sins of Dan. Blot me out for the sins of Boyd. Judge me for those sins. So what Moses could not do, Christ has done for His covenant people. The righteousness of Jesus is more than enough to cover the sins of those who turn to Him. So let's remember there is no middle ground this morning. The one who gives his life for us calls us to follow him. Again, these words in Matthew 16, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The one who boldly stood for Christ in his time was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he weighed this cost of discipleship. Here's what he wrote. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
maybe death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or maybe death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it's the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. Are, are you willing to die? Maybe at the hands of you know, those who oppose Christ and his kingdom. And when that time comes, that, that may be an easier decision when that time comes. Are you willing to die to self? To the old man? To the, to the middle ground to follow Jesus? We must share in his suffering if we are to share in his glory. So Moses, righteous anger, righteous actions could not die for the sins of the people. He, he was a sinner, too much a sinner. God can only accept a perfect, unblemished sacrifice, making Jesus the only one who could atone for sin. So the more we study Moses, the more we learn about Jesus and the mediator that we actually need. And those who stand with Christ, who see Christ in faith as the only way to be reconciled to God, they will be saved. There is no middle ground. Let's praise Him for this. Lord, we thank You that You have given us Christ, the mediator that we need, who does have that required righteousness that we do not or could ever acquire. Lord, we thank You that You have identified fully with us in our humanity, that You retained Your full divinity, fully God and fully man, as our mediator and good shepherd. Lord, show us our sin. Show us where we must put sin to death, die to ourself. Lord, work in us a deeper love for You, deeper affection for the One who cares for us, who goes before us, one who has delivered us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.